Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 1st, 2021. This is episode 2883. It is June the 1st, as I said, and that is an interesting thing to me. Because once this month is over, half of 2021 is gone. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Remember, if you're not working on your liberty, your independence, and your freedom, your wealth, all of that stuff, then life is working against you. That's how it works. You're either advancing or life pushes you backwards. Today we're going to have a really great interview with a gentleman named Philip Denniston. Uh, we're going to talk about monetary resets, economic controls, the hype and scams and manipulation around COVID. And we're also going to talk a little bit about his publishing company known as The Bad Daddy, Bad Daddy Publishing. Um, he writes children's books that explain economics and monetary policy in a way that kids can understand. And it is really one of the most important things that we can teach our children because most, most adults are ignorant about these subjects. I didn't say stupid. I said ignorant. They just don't know. And you'll, it'll be interesting. During this interview, you hear at one point, Philip will say, I have a degree in economics. And I didn't learn these things in college. Think about it. And I've said so much before. I've done shows on how the monetary policies work, what they are, what their flaws are, how they do function, etc., and what money really is and what money really isn't. And I've said people with economics degrees don't understand this. They don't know anything about it. And I've gotten flack about it. I've gotten accused of being arrogant by saying that. I've been accused of you know, talking down to people when I say that. that. I have a better understanding of money than somebody with an economics degree because I don't have one. Well, I do. Here's a guy with an economics degree, and he can definitely hold his own with me right now on economic policy and monetary policy. But he's telling you the same thing, and he's got the economics degree. He said, I didn't learn this there. I think that's really interesting. You should ask yourself why. <laughs> Well, we'll talk about why. We'll talk about a lot of other things today as well. I've also got some uh, announcements here up front today. This is some stuff that, you know, please don't jump ahead like maybe you usually do because uh, there's some stuff here you probably would want to know. Number one, I need expert counsel questions, and I really need them like today-ish, tomorrow-ish to get them over because a short week, get them over expert counsel, have enough content uh, for the show on Thursday, right? See, it's changed. So I'm in a little bit of a crunch. I really need your help. Get me some expert counsel Q&A questions. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. Get it on over to me. Next up, um, I wanted to just remind you guys, we have two new expert counsel members. John Bush is going to answer all your questions on cryptocurrency, digital privacy, things like that. He can also answer questions on entrepreneurship, uh, just like Nicole Sauce does and, and from his unique perspective. And he can answer your questions on things like Kratom, CBD, cannabis as a whole, etc., because uh, he has a whole business in that, of course, MyBraveBotanicals.com. Next up, Amy Dingman from A Farmish Kind of Life is now taking your questions on homeschooling, parenting, raising resilient children, things like that. She's doing that because Mike and Sue LaPreece have bowed out. I've had a couple of people ask, was there any problem? No. They went on a nomadic lifestyle. They're just not getting their answers in, and they, they just basically said, we're piking, and we know it, and we uh, we want to go on. I don't feel that they're piking. I, figure, I feel that they've done about three years of great service to the community, and it's the type of thing that when you do it for a while, maybe you decide it's time to let somebody else take a turn. 
And I really would like to thank Mike and Sula Priest hugely right now for the service they've given to our community over the years uh, in helping a lot of people make the decision to homeschool their children. Uh, the other thing is I need interviews. I, I uh, We usually stay booked out months and months. What happened is the last time we got booked way out, I left the damn thing closed for a long time, and we didn't, because I take the form down when we're like three months booked out, and I let the uh, interviews <clears throat> fall a little bit light. So I could use some interviews, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on guests, and fill out that form incomplete. If you do not include setup questions, I will delete your application. I don't care who your name is, including... John McAfee. John McAfee sent in a form to be on the show and did not put any setup questions in, so I had no idea what he wanted to talk about. Since it was McAfee, I did say, hey, do you want to do this? And he said, no, I won't do that. I have too much integrity to have setup questions. Bye. Then what are we talking about? Then what's the point? That's why I do it, so that we are on the same page. We talk about the things you want to talk about, and uh, also so that you have input into the show. But the bigger thing is, so I can evaluate what you want to talk about and determine whether or not like the audience would be interested in it. So please, if you have ever thought about being a guest, apply. You do not have to have a business or anything like that. If you have something interesting to talk about, get on the air, get on the air with us and have a conversation. Some of my best interviews have been people, you know, where you say put any website you have. They don't have a website. They don't have social media. It's just personal or if they do. Um, this show, this community has been built by regular people. And you might be surprised what you have to bring to the table if you think about it for a while. You know, I bet a lot of you know a lot about reloading. Anybody have a way to be reloading right now when supplies are short? I don't. Maybe you do, right? There's all types of subjects. We talk about so much. I'd love to have you on. Just fill out the form completely and we'll see if we can get you on. With that, before we bring um, Phil on for our interview today, Let's talk about our sponsors of the day real quick. KnifeKits.com has been with us for dang near ever. KnifeKits.com was with us since 2010, and I think 2010 was the first year that I took. No, they were to 2009, and in 2009 was the first year I took sponsors. We didn't have any sponsors in 08 when we started. So they've been with us about as long as possible. They are a great company. They've always taken care of this audience, and they give you the power to do something really cool build knives, whether you're doing it from the ground up with raw materials or taking the kit knife approach. They have a lot of great options. Check them out today. They do do a discount. It's rather small because it's a small margin business, but they do have a discount for MSB members as well. Next up, the Free State Project. You know, I've spoken at Free State Project three times at their Liberty Forum. It's a long trip for me to travel from Texas to New Hampshire in the wintertime. It really is. It, 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 it takes something to, to, for me to be able to do that. It's a long way at that time of year. I really don't want to be away from here, but I've done it. And that's because I believe in the work that they're doing. I think if you go to their website, fsp.org, and check out what they're all about, you'll see why I am such an enthusiastic supporter of them. The Free State Project is a simple idea. Bring as many liberty-minded people as you can to a relatively small state and drag it against its will, kicking and screaming into the world of liberty. They also have a new initiative called Visit New Hampshire. So you go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH. So you can go up there and kind of check the place out. Take a vacation. The White Mountains are a beautiful place to vacation. When I finished my hike, when I got out of the Army and I hiked a section hike of the Appalachian Trail, it was the White Mountain areas where I stopped. And the God's honest truth is even back then I almost moved there. 
I almost moved there. It is an incredible place. But you, instead of just taking a vacation, reach out to them in advance. <clears throat> and imagine taking a vacation where you have people that can help you out with logistics while you're there. And that way you get to know the people, you get to know the area, you find out things that only, you know, normal tourists don't find out, things like that. And you make a connection, and you take a vacation, and maybe you end up deciding that the Free State Project is right for you. FSP.org forward slash visit NH. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and dig into our show today. Uh, we're bringing on our special guest, Philip Denniston. Uh, Phil is the founder and CEO of Bad Daddy Publishing, unconventional wisdom for free-thinking parents in America. They publish a line of children's books, better bedtime stories, educating kids and families about the inflationary debt-based paper money system, the difference between sound versus fiat money, and what it all means for children growing up in America today. And with that, hey, Phil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Oh, thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today. We're going to talk about the monetary system, uh, systems of control, capitalism. We're going to talk about your book publishing business known as uh, Bad Daddy Publishing, which I think is really awesome. But before we dig into all that, who and what is a Philip Denniston? Like, uh, people have no idea who you are. You've not been on the show before. So take us back to, like, spacing out in school or something and how you end up where you are today. Yeah, good question, Jack. Well, First off, it's it's really a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed your podcast for for a lot of years now, and I really appreciate getting in front of your audience. I think we probably have a lot in common. I am 43 years old, father of four, and uh, during that time, gosh, I've I've been the one reading to my kids. Uh, my oldest is now 12, and the youngest are three, and I've been reading to them all this time before bed. And for the first few years, I started to say, gosh, what a missed opportunity, right? We're mm -hmm. reading about. Dr. Seuss and the day the crayons quit. And that's fun, but here we are spending an hour every night, and they're not learning anything. So I said, well, what can I teach my kids that they're not going to get from school? And really, I think the money system is one of the things that's the most important to understand, to be successful in life. And really, they don't teach you anything about it because that would reveal the con. So I got to uh, to write kids' books about the money system, and we'll go into some detail, I'm sure. But uh, It's really married my two passions, one, which is raising my kids, and two, really peeling back the on onion and understanding what's happening in the world of money and finance. And that's really what drives so many decisions, both nationally here in the U.S. and geopolitically internationally. So um, it's fascinating. It's fun. And uh, it doesn't necessarily pay the bills right now. It's more a labor of love. Uh, I've got a day job like everybody else, but uh, but it really gets my juices flowing. Cool, Matt. Well, you said you think you've determined the root of nearly all the world's biggest problems. That's a pretty big claim. Can you tell us what you think that is? Absolutely. So in a few words, it's the broken, debt-based, fraudulent paper money system. So in America today, and actually every country in the world, our money is fiat, meaning it's by government decree. The dollar is money because the government says it is, not because the free market found it to be useful in the role. It's not backed by anything real like gold or silver the way that it used to be, even though the Constitution does require it because over thousands of years, gold and silver proved themselves well-suited for the role. But because it's not backed by anything, governments and banks can create dollars at will while the rest of us have to work or trade for them. It's a two-tiered crony system, and it's the reason for the massive wealth gap in America and the world and the social unrest that we're seeing 
as people of means and wealth can borrow at artificially low interest rates, they push the price of money down to near zero, and those with, with access to credit can buy up all the assets, the real estates and the businesses, the real estate and the businesses, and those debts are then inflated away. Even the environment, our biggest environmental problems are largely driven by a growth at any cost culture. Now, why do we need constant economic growth? Why are they always talking about GDP growth, more resources, more oil, copper, coal, corn, cobalt? Because every dollar in this fiat money system is created as a loan that bears interest. And in order to pay back the loans with the interest, the, the system, the, the economic system, and specifically the money system, has to keep growing constantly. And if it's not growing, it's collapsing in on itself like 2008. It's really a slow-motion train wreck unfolding before our very eyes. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, you mentioned civil unrest there. And I could take two sides of the civil unrest thing. One, I could say that this is all a big cause of it. And I'd kind of like you to speak to that. But I could also say that, at least in short-term temporary situations, it may actually suppress civil unrest. Um, if you didn't send out massive federal bonuses, uh, unemployment bonuses last year, we may have had more uh, riots in the streets. Now, I don't necessarily think that means it's a good thing at all. Um, that actually means that you can ferment civil unrest where and when as, as you please. Is that is that kind of how you see it, too? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a brutal system of control out there. And I think, you know, we, we've got this brewing civil unrest. And of course, George Floyd w was a catalyst. And, and, uh, and they, and they probably want you to think that it's about race because the lower and middle classes, they know something isn't right. They sense it's not a fair system anymore, but they don't quite understand that the giant baton pinning them to the ground is the money system itself. It's one thing that the people in power cannot speak of because that would reveal the con. It was uh, Henry Ford who once said, I think, it's a good thing that people don't understand our banking and monetary system because if they did, there would be a revolution by morning. And they'll have us point fingers at each other, white versus black, red versus blue, capitalist versus socialist. But the real problem is that the money system is a fraud. And money itself is the social contract. It underlies every transaction, every contract, every working hour of every day. And when it, its issuance isn't real, it's not backed by something tangible like gold or silver that can't be conjured from thin air, what festers socially is rot. And you're right that they can appease the masses with stimulus for now and pay people to stay home. But, you know, if people aren't out producing, there aren't going to be any goods and services for that money to buy. And the only result is that prices are going to go way up and the civil unrest is going to get worse. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, there's a word that's thrown around um, a lot in our society today, and that is capitalism. How do you see capitalism playing into this? Because I find that a lot of times people that argue about capitalism being you know, good or bad um, generally don't even define the word the same way. Yes. I mean, so we're, it's interesting because right now, you know, you have people coming out and vilifying and blaming capitalism because the system that we have today is not working well. It's so unfair and it's so crooked. I mean, you have pockets where, you know, where people are doing good for each other and, 
and being paid, you know, and, and, and being successful because of that. But what you really get is you get big business that captures government through regulatory capture. And this is really not capitalism at all. Capitalism requires failure, right? We abandoned capitalism when America adopted the slogan, too big to fail back in 2008. This is really more like cronyism, where big business owns government through regulatory capture. You know, Costco can stay open, but we're going to shut down the hair salons and every mom and pop shop. That isn't capitalism. Capitalism requires freedom. It requires individual liberty. And most importantly, it requires failure. So what I think we're about to see is yet another monetary reset. Um, I've talked about monetary resets since I started the show in 2008. There's been a lot of them throughout the history of the United States. I, I would go further than calling, calling them resets to actually calling them defaults, um, in, in my opinion, based on you know what. When you make a deal, that like this is how your money works, and the whole rest of the world accepts that deal, And then without them saying, okay, you changed the rules, you've defaulted on the deal you made. Can you talk about maybe some of the defaults that we've had or resets that we've had with our monetary system over the years and, and what impact they've had on American, American way of life? Definitely, yeah. So, and there's been, you know, these, these happen every, you know, 30, 30 to 50 years or so. I mean, the, the two I'll mention today were, were 1933 and then 1971. So, In 1933, in the depths of the Great Depression, uh, we basically needed to devalue the dollar. But the dollar at the time was pegged to gold at about $20 per ounce. And in order to devalue it, the dollar itself, they first had to confiscate the gold. So FDR issued an executive order that made it illegal for individuals to hold gold. And he confiscated what American citizens had. And they were, you know, we were largely loyal and, and thought he was doing the right. You know, we were following orders. So we brought our gold, we gave it to him, and they compensated U.S. citizens at the $20 exchange rate, $20 an ounce. But then they promptly revalued gold to $35 per ounce, which devalued the dollar by over 40%. And that was essentially taking the purchase, purchasing power of the American people to, to, as a, as to try to inflate away all that debt. Now, in 1971, this basically happened again, and, and, and uh, the folks that were hurt were, were largely foreigners. What happened was, uh, in 1944, actually, the Bretton Woods Agreement after World War II dictated that the U.S. dollar would be pegged to gold at $35 per ounce, and all other currencies would be pegged to the U.S. dollar. We had about two-thirds of the world's gold after funding the uh, war efforts, uh, or supplying the war efforts in Europe, I should say, and getting gold in return. And so the U.S. dictated terms, king dollar, would be pegged at $35 per ounce. But over the next couple of decades as we were spending more on guns and butter, guns being the Vietnam War and butter being LBJ's great society programs, we were creating massive amounts of dollars. And some world leaders led by Charles de Gaulle of France were saying, wait a minute, all these dollars that are going overseas, I'd rather hold the gold. So they lined up, it was basically a run on the bank, they emptied Fort Knox of about half of our gold stash holding us to that promise of exchanging gold at 35 an ounce. Well, in panic and desperation, Nixon in 1971 closed the gold window. He said, we will no longer be converting dollars into gold. And since that point, we've essentially been uh, an unanchored mess of finance and debt. 
the great financialization, the hollowing out of America and American families with debt. And, you know, you see this everywhere. In the 70s, prices started rising dramatically. Now, one way they got that under control, in addition to Paul Volcker and, and Ronald Reagan raising interest rates into the you know, mid-teens, they also, uh, before that, Henry Kissinger, I think he was uh, Nixon's secretary of state, he convinced the Saudis to only accept uh, the U.S. dollars for oil. So that essentially was when the, the petrodollar system was born, and that created even more demand for dollars. So these, these, these desperate measures kept the system intact. But 50 years later, we are teetering on the precipice of, of, of a massive move. And that's either going to be giant deflationary waves that d destroy markets because of all decades of malinvestment, as the Austrian economists would call it, or we keep printing and printing and printing, you get a total collapse of the currency system. So it's, it's we're really uh, walking a tightrope now. Yeah, I mean, and I'll throw some additional things on there. I would I would look at an additional default on the monetary system between the two primary years you mentioned of 1933 and 1971, of 1964-1965 with the Coinage Act. When we stopped backing the coinage with silver, that was a straight-up default, right? We just changed the rules yet again. Uh, and another really important year in, in co the context of everything you said with gold and the gold backing was actually 1975. So if you look at what happened to the price of gold after Nixon closed the, the window in 71 up to 1974, it went up, but it didn't really completely decouple. 1975 on, gold went ballistic against the dollar because it was made legal for U.S. citizens to own gold again. And being the largest market in the world, you know, we might have an impact on something like a massive global commodity if we were actually allowed to buy, own, sell, and trade it. So, like, all of this kind of mishmash together is like this grand illusion that everything's okay. There's nothing to see here, that type of thing. Uh, and this has been done throughout the entire history of the country. Like you said, among like 30, 40 years, uh, the crime of 1876, where silver was demonetized all the way back then. Um, the whole, uh, you know, you do children's stories. Well, like, one of the greatest stories ever told in a book that's really kind of a kid's-type book is The Wizard of Oz. And The Wizard of Oz was the story of the crime of 1876 and the demonetization of silver. And the reason people don't know that is we don't read books, we watch movies. And, of course, when they killed Julie Garland uh, in, in the production of The Wizard of Oz, they, they made a change. The idea of the silver slippers on the golden road was too close to reality, so they changed the slippers to ruby. And as soon as you change the slippers to ruby, it changed the entire context. But if you have... Dorothy going down the golden road in her silver slippers, silver slippers to see the man behind the her, emerald uh, the, the curtain in the Emerald City greenbacks. It's pretty obvious what that whole story is really about, and you ha they have nothing to offer you. That's the real message of that book. And it's interesting to me that a lot of this stuff that we see is new. It's repackaged, retooled, and, and sadly, I, I, and I would think you would agree they, they've they've gotten better at it. Yeah, so these are such great points, Jack. And I, I remember when I read that about the Wizard of Oz, how fascinating that is. I mean, and of course, it's completely lost on 99.9% on of the population. Nobody knows that at all. 
And so in many ways, we're, we're, you know, it's a fun story regardless, but we're missing the point. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And when your, your point about the silver coming out of coins is, is so uh, relevant as well. I mean, you know, the coins used to be silver. And then the U.S. Constitution defines a dollar as, I think, 371 grains of silver, which is something like, um, I think, three quarters of an ounce. But when they pulled the silver out of those coins, I mean, what a travesty. I mean, now these are tokens that we pass around. These aren't, this isn't money. This isn't real. And this is what, you know, this is how ancient Rome collapsed as well when they started clipping the coins. So these are such, such great points. Um, and, you know, we use the analogy, the wizard behind the curtain all the time, you know, because it's, it's essentially, you know, the, the, these people don't have, they had the only power they have is from confidence and that's where the money system gets its its value as well it's just the confidence that we place in it if you lose that confidence the whole thing's a con game the jig is up the other analogy we used is the uh the emperor has no clothes right it takes a child after all to tell the world that the emperor has no clothes yeah because everybody else is afraid of what will happen if they speak the truth they're gonna get their head cut off you know yep. and there's 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 some reality to that definitely um, how do you feel the response to COVID-19 has contributed to these, all of these trends? Because I mean, I would point out just right out of the gate, like your point where FDR took gold out of circulation and, and rebased the dollar against gold started during a national emergency. And like you said, it, people just kind of went along with it. They kind of gave in. They kind of felt like this is what we need to do to help the country type thing. I think if times had been really great and a president randomly decided to do that, there would have been pitchforks and torches and, you know, cl Congress clowns dangling in the street. But under the auspice of an emergency, it's amazing what government is able to get done that it wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, what's the old expression, right? Never let a good crisis go to waste. And, you know, boy, they, they move quickly on some of this stuff. I mean, COVID really is like a can of gasoline poured on the fire. Mm. It gave the, the Federal Reserve and the government a huge pass to create boatloads of new money. Um, the, the balance sheet of the Fed doubled from $4 trillion to $8 trillion, and they're still printing another $120 billion every single month of new yeah. money. Dumping it into markets is propping up stock and bond markets, but now it's finding its way to the grocery store and the gas pump and the lockdowns. I mean, what a, what a disaster disrupting supply chains, but, but also ruining hundreds of thousands of small businesses. And if you pay people not to work and they're not producing and you're printing money, prices have no choice but to go up. And if you look at some of the, uh, some of this stuff, too, the, the funding for social media campaigns supporting the lockdowns and even legislation, you know, aimed at, at, at uh, more lockdowns was largely funded by big tech. It's backwards. It's un-American, this idea of essential businesses, right? Yeah. You know, all businesses are essential to their owners and employees. And it uh, but really the the other thing that, that has me a little nervous is the. Uh, the great reset agenda of the World Economic Forum, and I, mean, I guess I'd laugh them off, except you see ties with the Biden administration. I mean, the Biden administration's website, I believe, is buildbackbetter.org, and that's the slogan of the World Economic Forum's great reset. You know, Klaus Schwab, head of the, the forum, you know, he published a book right away that uh, COVID-19 is the opportunity to reimagine the world, a world government, a new feudal system, basically, where you own nothing 
but you're happy for some reason. Maybe they've got you medicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. It's, um, it, it's astonishing to me how well this worked. When this all started, I was one of the first people to start talking about hydroxychloroquine. And I had my moment of just not getting it where I'm like, why, why would you do this? Why would you prevent this, this medication, which is not going to fix everything, but is damn effective from being used? And the answer came shortly thereafter when you realized it was nothing that could ever be said that would change that, that they wanted exactly what happened to happen, which is, to me, it's still bizarro land. Um, I guess it's looking more at the chessboard than or the, the chessboard than the checkerboard, thinking longer term and obtaining their goals. Because in some ways, this wasn't really good for. Well, I'd say it wasn't good for everybody at the top. But what I mean by that is, it wasn't necessarily good for everybody in government. Um, however, I, I, I think you're right. Like the tech companies, etc. Like and the big giant oligarchs, the Amazons of the world. It was the best thing that ever happened to them. Like just better than they could possibly imagine. And if you want to eventually like run your company with 90% robots, like this is even better because now nobody wants to go back to work. It, it is one of the sadly most masterful chess moves that the economic elite have ever pulled off. Yeah, it's and it's frightening. I'm with you 100%. I mean, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, I mean, these, these cheap, yeah. readily available generics that – that are remarkable, best thing we have out there at preventing and treating COVID-19, and you will not hear a, a positive word about them from the medical industrial complex or from government. And it's, it's so it's like, what a travesty. Yes, do they want this to happen, and then why? What what plans do they have? And and this uh, this mass push for to get everybody vaccinated is alarming as well. I mean, these are new technologies, messenger RNA that's going to go in and change every cell in your body that's, uh, you know, proved on an experimental basis. Uh, the mad rush to make you think that everyone else is getting vaccinated and it's the best thing you can do is, is scary. And, and I feel it does somewhat, unfortunately, tie into this World Economic Forum's fourth industrial revolution where they're talking essentially about marriaging uh, the marriage of a physical and a digital identity. And if they get us conditioned to believe that, you know, vaccines every six to 12 months when they've got a new, you know, cocktail to message into ourselves, I just it's it's alarming where they're going with it. I know it sounds conspiracy theory, but when you think about what's happening and you try to answer the question why there's there's really no good answer. I mean, at best, it's a money grab by big pharma. And of course, they pull enough strings that they could probably get that done. But that doesn't explain why, you know, the big tech companies are behind it as well. It's uh, it's baffling. I, I think that what happened was the, the crisis came. A lot of people think it was in, intentional. And it may have been from China. I think it was more like incompetence. I always try to ascribe incompetence first to governments because they're pretty good at incompetence. Uh, it's <laughs> one of the few things they're good at is incompetence. And I think that, like, it was like, okay, let's not let the crisis go to waste. But... What's been more alarming to me than their proposed solutions was the compliance of the people. And I think even the oligarchs were like, holy shit, they'll do anything we say. Tell them to put masks on. Tell them to take masks off. Tell them to put them back on. Look, they did it. Like, and I think they literally sat back and went, oh, man, we, we, we have to take full advantage of this. Like, I don't know, you know, if we'll ever get this much sheepism ever again. 
But I think that they were blown away by how well they were able to capitalize on it. And I think that's why it actually kind of, if you, if you think back on it, now it all seems real obvious. But if you go back to like February last year, it was kind of a clunky start to totalitarianism, right? Like, I don't think they realized how well it was going to work out for them in the very beginning. They really weren't sure. But I'd say it was by about early summer, like May, June, they were like, oh, all right, it's on. And like I said, their response is one thing, because I expect malice from scum. The level of complacency and compliance and groupthink and monkeys throwing shit at other monkeys to enforce the will of the state, even where there was no law, shocked even me. And I was about, you know, if you made a list of the top 100 pessimists in the world, I might have been on it. Like, I mean, I was pretty down on people in general before this. And when it, I was like, holy crap. It's like 60 to 70% of the people in this country will literally do anything they're told And I think it is true that it's more Democrats than Republicans as a percentile, but there's a shitload of totally compliant Republicans too. I mean, it is it is mind numbing how compliant people are. It is, and it's it's uh, we're pacified. I mean, you know, probably not you and I and, and your audience, but the way that you to see the 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 masses are herded from pen to pen. And and when it's so clearly obvious we're being lied to, right? And there's always an agenda. First, oh, don't you know? Don't wear a mask. You don't need a mask. You know? Okay, you now you need a mask because we, we have enough. Okay, now you need two masks. Okay, yeah. now only the vaccinated can can uh, can not wear a mask. I mean, it's all agenda driven. It's narrative driven. So it's you can't. They've at the at the cost or the objective of short term policy goals. They've sacrificed trust in our institutions and government and trust is the most important thing that we could possibly have. So how boneheaded could they be? And the other, um, the other thing that, uh, when they basically tell you something because they're trying to achieve a goal, uh, there was another example. I'm drawing a blank. I'll bring it back if I think of it again, but move, move on from that one. No, that's fine. You, you know, another thing that's blown me away in recent days Two things, really. One is the number of people still wearing masks when they're told they don't have to wear masks because you know those are probably the people that have been vaccinated for months, right? Like, because they're compliant. The other thing is the almost badge of honor that both masking and vaccination has become. I've been astounded at the number of people, without me asking, without having any reason for them to tell me, told, would tell, say things to me like, well, don't worry, I got my vaccination. Like, that's like, what? I, like, I give two shits about you being vaccinated? Like, I mean, I met a couple on the beach and we were talking to them, you know, about Florida and, and being, you know, being familiar with the place we vacation called Sanibel. And they, like us, had been there for years. But all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, don't worry, we're vaccinated. Do I look worried? I'm standing out here with no shirt on in the sun, right, fishing. With, with, with fish goo all over my hands, and I'm worried about you breathing COVID on me outside. You, you and this, it is almost like they want to wear a shirt that says they're vaccinated. So they're very proud of their vaccination. Oh, they've got them. I mean, I've I've certainly seen plenty of people with with buttons that say, "Oh, Jesus!" And, uh, you've got the digital, you know, frame your social media posts, and I just got vaccinated. I mean, it's virtue signaling, and it's 
is oh, it's downright. It's bad. almost reverse virtue signaling now. Some of them are like, well, I I know I don't have to wear a mask, but I don't want somebody to think I'm a Trump supporter. I right. mean, people are literally saying, like, oh my god, and I'm thinking. The orange man lives in your head, rent free. Like, you know, like he, they're addicted to Trump. Even the media's addicted to Trump. Like their ratings went to shit. They keep trying to resurrect the guy. He's off in Florida playing golf, but they they keep bringing him back up. I, I, I you barely hear from the guy. Um, it, it's insanity. It's absolute insanity. It, it's funny. Like I, I rarely, rarely turn on CNN, but when I do, I feel like they're still talking about Trump. All yeah, day. like he's still in charge. <laughs> It's a threat to our democracy and whatever. It's like you guys are in charge of everything now. You guys are you got everything. You have everything except the court for now, right? Like, and and yet it's still all Trump's fault. And it's like I'm not a big defender of Trump, but I'm all, I am a defender of like reality and pointing out delusional thinking and delusional behavior when it's going on. And my God, this is they they, they made a you know we made a big joke about Trump derangement syndrome early on. We actually, I think, now have conclusive proof that it is a legitimate mental disorder at this point. I think there's more people afflicted with, with Trump derangement syndrome than most other mental afflictions that people have. Because there's no other reason for behavior like this. Like I said, you know, I don't want to not wear a mask because I could be confused with being a Republican. Boy, you talk about, these are the same people that told us for how long to do what? Trust science? Right, right. Well, yeah, trust the science. What what a line that's been completely bastardized. I mean, if we trusted the science, we would be taking a closer look at ivermectin. We'd be looking at hydroxychloroquine. We would say that we don't have any long-term safety data on these vaccines. They're brand new. I mean, trust the science. It's one of those, yeah, it's, it's become this line that's parroted by, as you said, monkeys that are basically being trained to throw shit at other monkeys. It's It's divide and conquer, and it's really sad. Uh, and, and I think social media has made this so much more pervasive because, you know, you know, we've all got a phone in our pocket. We can open it up and have a glance at what we think or what it looks like the consensus of the herd believes. And, of course, we've got this quirk inside of our brains that says, you know, we are afraid to question the consensus because, you know, in our evolutionary past, if we were uh, disagreeing with the herd, we could be banished from the herd and we'd freeze to death or get picked off by a predator. So at all costs, we find safety in the herd and we cannot feel that we're standing alone or being different. So when they send this stuff down your feed, everybody's getting vaccinated, trust the science, etc. You know, it has a It has a controlling effect on most of the population that says, well, I better do this because I don't I don't want to be outside of the herd. Have you known any people that said initially, I will not get the vaccination? And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, I got the vaccination. Like it started out in the anti and but became like because my sister-in-law did this. There's no way I'm getting it. Three weeks later, I don't feel good. I'm feeling really sick because I got the vaccination. Like what? What? Wow. Yeah. What? You said you, you know, what I'm talking about but people that. That did it, but people that were not going to do it, it seems like the campaign pushed them over. Yeah, I so I can't say I can think of any examples, but to be perfectly honest, most of the people I know are lining up. They've got it already. They're you know they they didn't think for a second to question They're it. Pre-compliant. <laughs> yeah, and these are you know these are folks that I know from work, from my kids' school. You know, obviously 
people that are, you know, that subscribe to my books are, are more likely to, to be cautious and a skeptic. But, but people I see in day to day life on my day job and, and kids activities and whatnot, I mean, they're lining up to get vaccinated. Even, you know, even my kids come back from school and, and, you know, they've basically, you know, been conditioned to think that they should be in mass all day and they should, you know, that our family should get vaccinated. So we have to reeducate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, what I'm really scared is about is the way kids have taken to this. Like, I'm seeing more kids now wearing masks than adults. And I mean, like, and I, you know, I don't want to tell somebody else how to raise their kids, but I'm talking about, like, you see an obvious family out, right? And mom and dad are unmasked. And Debbie and Johnny are wearing masks. And they seem very happy about wearing their masks. They seem, like, very, very enthusiastic about their masks. Like, it's a fashion statement. And I read an article recently, I more accurately skimmed it. Somebody wrote an article about this before COVID, about how this was actually a mental disorder in Japan. That, that people, like, you know, the Asian countries have been very big on the whole masking if you're sick thing for a long time. But some people seem to actually become attached to this idea of wearing a mask, like it's a security blanket or something. And when I see this going on with their kids, I'm thinking, well, of course, if they're in regular school and the schools are open and they're wearing their mask all day long in school, this seems like a very, very dangerous method of conditioning. It is. I mean, and I, I agree with you 100 percent. Even with my own kids, I mean, they, they are so trained by school to wear masks that they're, you know, that they have no problem with it at all and just feel like it's the right thing to do. And uh, it's it's troubling i mean the, the, the fact that we went almost a year without really even seeing anybody's face you know the smile on your on, on on your face when you meet somebody new or you say something nice to somebody i mean it's it's so critical especially to the kids who are just growing and developing social skills it's uh it's been a brutal year and I, i'm in texas you know where we we've, we've been open for for months and It hasn't been too bad, but I can't imagine what it would be like in, say, California and New York where they where they were locked down for really like a full year. It's got to be just so brutal on those poor kids. I mean, Zoom school, you know, we did it for a few months. Thankfully, uh, schools opened, you know, last fall here. But but those few months in the in the spring were just brutal. Well, yeah, I, I when people talk about like quarantines and lockdowns and say, you know, Texas opened this winter, I'm like, or you know, not really like. We only really went kind of Gestapo with it for about a month when it first started because I think that at that point you can legitimately state that government officials, if they actually were concerned about their people, didn't know. They didn't know. But, like, we had the mask order, but that was really about it. We had 50% restaurant capacity for a while. That came back before the official reopening. And I think it makes us in Texas maybe have less empathy than we should for people in places like New Jersey or whatever. Because if you think about what that, like what April was like in 2020, these people have been living under that, actually worse than that, and they still are in some cases. And this to me is absolute insanity because the beauty of our republic being that, you know, governors have a lot more power than presidents do when it comes to what happens in an individual state in many ways anyway. We had these examples like Texas. We had examples like Christy Nome in South Dakota that was just outstanding. DeSantis in Florida, who was pretty damn good as well, if you don't count Dade County's idiocy. And w these states that never went full lockdown long term, that opened up quicker, 
did no worse overall with this. Which should have been a case that if anybody was following the science, you'd say, well, wait a minute. If, 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 and, but yet they, I, I can understand why the sheeple didn't, because they lied. I was in Florida last summer, and I came up to my hotel room, and my wife had been there before me from the beach, and I guess she was flipping through the channels and just happened to randomly leave it on C, uh, MSNBC. So I walk in, and MSNBC's on talking about Florida. This is like July of 2020. And, my God, it sounded like Beirut in the middle of a nuclear war, the way they were describing it. And I was literally like looking at the TV and looking out the window and then looking at the TV and looking out the window like some kind of like stand-up comedian. Like, what? no, like this is just not the case. Then when we reopened in Texas, I heard on local Texas radio stations, local te Texas personalities saying that since we reopened the hospitalization – Uh, the death rate, all of it was on the uptick again. And I'm sitting, while they're saying it, looking at the state of Texas website, and it's all going down. Like direct conflict. So I understand why people bought into it, but it was like if you took 10 seconds to research these claims, it just wasn't the case. And yet people just got hook, line, and sinker, huh? Yeah, I mean it's 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 crazy. It's, they're driving a narrative, and it's it's amazing how people are so willing to accept it and then regurgitate it back. It's uh, I mean the, at least the beauty of the American system having 50 states is that we we could make diff different decisions and see where things were going well. And fortunately for you know California and New York and and elsewhere, they're going to be paying the price, and they already are. As I mean, you, you try to get a U-Haul to go yeah. from California to Texas. Yeah. You know, you, you'll pay a fortune, but if you'll drive it from Texas back to California, they'll practically give it to you. <laughs> you know why? Because freedom isn't free. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> That's a real freedom isn't free. You want to come to Texas, it's going to cost you some money. Um, yeah. and we, uh, it was COVID that made me feel so – I mean, we, we moved from California in 2013. We lived in San Diego. I love San Diego. It's gorgeous. But, you know, that was when they were – They were putting in a, a prop to raise the, the top uh, income, state income tax rate from like, you know, nine to 10. And, and well, one percent isn't that significant, but it was just like, you know what? This is about principles, right? If, yeah. the, if the people vote for vote this into place, if they're not smart enough to know that that's going to drive the job creators, you know, the productive people out of the state, then they don't deserve for us to stick around. And I, I was certain that it wouldn't pass because I guess I'm a, a, an idealist. Optimist. An idiot. Yeah. <laughs> My wife was, wanted to move to Texas and she thought, she thought it would pass. So that, that's what we said. If it, if it passes, we'll move. And of course I, I had to eat that, but I'm glad that I did. I'm happy to be here in Austin. So we started out talking about monetary resets. So let's kind of pull back into that a little bit. Um, There's a lot of talk now of a central bank digital currency. And I, to me, that will be the next reset, i.e. default, uh, instead of paper dollar, dollars. How do you kind of see that turning out? I agree with you 100%. They need that. That's how, that's how they need, that's how they get the inflation that they really need. And of course, they've announced that they're working on it. There's already one being rolled out in China. And it's probably the only thing worse than paper money, right? Paper money being fiat money is bad, but at least with the cash option available to you, you do have some privacy in how you spend that money and you do have some liberty. But an all digital dollar basically allows visibility into everything you do, how much you spend, how much you save and where you spend your money. And it also gives them control 
because they can actually program these digital dollars to be spent in only ways that they want. So they think because of that, they can actually inflate away the debts as needed selectively. They can direct it towards hand-picked patrons of the economy, stimulating growth where and how they want will all be their little marionettes. But the real problem with this is that it really overlooks the most important thing to an economy, which is the price signal. Uh, entrepreneurs, you know, create capitalist build to serve the needs of a market, which is dictated by price. And when you're, when you're toying with that by basically uh, using the supply of money selectively, you're going to create massive, massive distortions. But it's their last hope, a mad dash to stay ahead of the debt deflation that keeps trying to ripple through the system. When 2000, 2008, March of last year, all of these downward deflations are trying to correct decades of malinvestment. As the great Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises said, there is no means of avoiding the final collapse of a boom brought about by credit expansion. You can only uh, have that come sooner as a result of abandoning the money printing or later as a final and total catastrophe of the currency system. And I think FedCoin will get us there. These are the kind of things so that you, when you realize it's coming, you think, oh, my gosh, it's imminent. And just because it's inevitable doesn't necessarily mean it's imminent. It's going to probably tinker on for a couple more years, maybe more than that. But I do think that's exactly where the next default comes from, FedCoin. You know, I think that people that think that, well, the FedCoin will just let them print money at will, like that that horse went out of the barn a long time ago. They they already print money at will. Um, only 3% of the total mo- well, it's probably not even that anymore. And by around 2014, we were already at a point where only 3% of the U.S. monetary supply existed as cash. 3%. So 97% digital already, but it doesn't have the tracing and tracking capabilities. What, I, what I'm kind of... Oh, sorry, sorry, no problem. But I'm kind of coming to um, an understanding of, though, is the, the sick genius of this supply shortage system uh, that they created with COVID. You keep using the word deflation. Most people are terrified of inflation, but deflation in a fractional reserve system is cancer. It destroys and rips economies apart. Well, you can't have deflation when you have supply shortages. If you want to talk about something that pushed off deflation in the last year, think about the shortages and the supply chain disruptions due to these COVID shutdowns. And and that's that's you know that's you know you're talking Lex Luthor level freaking maniacal evil you know genius at that point, you know, and not the Lex Luthor of, of TV Superman, the 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 deep you know deeper dark dark story uh, Lex Luthor, the real genius. I mean. Come on, you, you basically shut down the entire global system supply chain and you've, you've, you've created an artificial inflation, then you fueled it with money on top of it. Yeah, I mean, and, and they, of course, they've been trying to get inflation since 2008 and, and the, the quantitative easing buying up uh, uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities was driving financial markets higher, but it wasn't giving them the, the consumer price inflation. Well, boy, you're right. I mean... There's the, you know, you, one, you get government spending out of the treasury like they're doing, but two, you, you stop people from producing. 
you're damn going to get it good and hard. Yes, that's a, a, a very good point and would explain why they're, why some of these decisions, these very, very, very terrible, brutal decisions for, for hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people would be instituted. Oh, it's, it is, it's, it's evil. Well, don't you think, I mean, when you really look at it that way, what we're doing, and when I say we, I don't mean you and me, I mean society as a whole, fighting the natural order of, of economics, right? So if things become easier to make and more efficient to produce, the natural order of economics would be that prices would go down. We've actually been conditioned since, maybe not birth, but certainly since kindergarten, to believe that it is perfectly normal. And it makes perfect sense for the cost of living to go up. This literally makes no sense in a world where we keep developing better, faster, quicker technology. And it's so powerful that in the world of technology itself, the rules get broken. What is a 50-inch, you know, super high-quality TV cost today? And I can tell you because I just bought one for my, my wife for the upstairs room, 319 bucks. $319 is what, what a 50 inch badass Vizio, you know, not the best you can get, but way better than anything you could have bought for any money 10 years ago. And it would have cost you, cost you like $5,000. So in the world of pure technology, the, the evidence is clear, but there's no reason that shouldn't impact. Like we can build a house a hell of a lot faster today than we could in, in 1900. So why do houses cost more? Like land, you could make a case that there's less of it, but there's really not. Like less than 1% of the land in the United States even has people on it, right? So like that doesn't make any sense either, honestly. The, 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 the concept that prices should go up makes no sense, and it would never happen in a natural economy. I guess if that's even a word, a natural economy. Yeah, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. The natural order is deflation because technology and ingenuity allow us in the free market competition, allow us to produce things at a lower cost and pass those savings on to consumers to compete. But they're fighting this tooth and nail, and that's because the, the debt-based paper money system, again, every dollar is created as a loan and therefore needs in interest. It has to keep growing. And in a gold-backed system, you don't have that. And unfortunately, it's not a requirement. And unfortunately, if you look at the uh, the gains from productivity, right, people have continued to get more productive through the years because we've had new technologies. When, you know, before we did everything manually, now we've got machines and robots and capital investment. And productivity basically tracked wages for the working man. So, As that, as they got more productive, they took home more of that extra pay and they had higher standards of living and they tracked pretty much one to one until you get to 1971. Yep. Productivity keeps going up and wages stagnate. That's because the fruit of our collective labor, all that ingenuity and technology and hard work is now siphoned or suctioned to the top because the debt based paper money system allows those with access to credit to essentially buy up all the assets, inflate away the debt, and suck that productivity right to the top. Now, this is not something people are unaware of. And there's more and more people every day that are looking to protect their wealth and preserve their wealth. Gold has traditionally been, gold and silver, I should say, a method of wealth preservation, of wealth assurance. We now seem to have a bifurcation of people that, that pick cryptocurrency or gold and silver. 
and specifically within cryptocurrency, kind of the first mover advantage, hardest cryptocurrency there is, is Bitcoin. I, I, I don't believe that it provides anything approaching privacy, but it has incredible technological security. How do you see that playing out? Like, which side wins in that? Should there even be a bifurcation? Should there be more of a why not both? Yeah, great question. And so I was a, a little late to the Bitcoin uh, bus. I had heard about it, but unfortunately, in the beginning, I was thinking, uh, of, think of it, thinking of it that way: is it gold or Bitcoin? Well, gold has got you know thousands of years of history behind it. I've always advocated gold sound money, and so therefore, I'm going to stick in that camp. And a couple, a few years into it, I started to take more notice, and then I thought about it differently. And I said to myself, "Wait a minute! I mean, this doesn't have to be a question. It doesn't have to be gold or Bitcoin. It can be gold and Bitcoin. And I think gold is certain to do well when the financial reset. Um, Bitcoin may or may not. It's a, but it's an extremely cool speculation, and it should do well. It's designed specifically to solve this very problem at exactly the apex of that problem: the fiat money system." Is, you know, is headed for collapse or reset. So conceptually, I love Bitcoin, but, you know, the, the, the risk, of course, is the governments hate competition and they may still try to crush it. And it's arguable whether they can crush it completely, but they can certainly do it massive damage. They are running out of time to do that, though, as it gets more entrenched into the financial system. But as I mentioned, the cool thing is we don't have to choose gold, silver, or Bitcoin. We can own and advocate all three, and I do. They're, they're, each of them has a place in the uh, in the anti-dollar stable. You know, I think we start. We need to start looking at Bitcoin not as a cryptocurrency, but as a crypto asset. And I'm going to totally credit Michael Saylor with that because that's where I heard that terminology distinction come from. And I've used both of those terms for years now interchangeably. And the point he made is Bitcoin is not a currency, not in our modern world. We can't view it as a currency. We shouldn't view it as a currency because you can't have a currency that creates a tax consequence when it changes hands. You define that as an asset. Yep. You define that as a commodity, which is how the tax regulations have been on Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies, assets, since 2014. It's been pretty clear what the U.S. IRS thinks about uh, cryptos as a whole. His point was that if you're smart, you you don't sell Bitcoin, you don't trade Bitcoin, you hold Bitcoin kind of like gold, and then it gets used as a leverage tool. Um, and I, I don't I don't see it being crushed. I and the reason I don't see it being trust, crushed is I'm not late to the bus. I've been here a long time. I have watched the Bitcoin obituaries website go from one claim that Bitcoin is dead to hundreds and hundreds of claims that Bitcoin is dead. I have been through the roller coaster up and down, left and right, over and over again. I've seen FUD of FUD and FUD of FUD's FUD. And if you could crush this thing, you'd have done it by now. The, 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 the choice they have to make then is do they push it fully into the underground like it was originally designed to be, or do they co-opt it? And I think they co-opt it. The beauty of that for people that still think they're too late, because I don't think they are, is that you still have time to front-run this thing because you can't change it. Bitcoin, I, I know some people are going to have a hard time with this, but if you want to look at it as money, it's the hardest money ever created. Even gold, you can say it's fundamentally limited, but if the price of gold triples tomorrow, the mining companies are going to dig deeper and faster. You will never have more than 21 million Bitcoin. 
the wild card is all these other currencies or assets. And so you can have more crypto, but you don't get more Bitcoin. So it all comes down to do people remain confident? I think what the government is going to change the narrative to is it's pretty much been cryptocurrency is bad. I think the new narrative is going to be, well, this little list, these are the good cryptos. And these are the bad cryptos that only evil people use. Now, whether that'll work, I don't know. It didn't work on Bitcoin. If you if you if you go watch um, any kind of crime drama or anything from a few years ago and back, like for about eight years in there, every bad guy was using Bitcoin, right? Like, I mean, that's like and it just didn't work. It just didn't work. So I don't know. You know, now it's going to be Monero, Pirate, all the privacy coins are the bad ones. That only a drug dealer would want privacy. Um, so I don't know, man. I think you're going to see more and more institutional money come in. ETFs released this year, etc. And I think the the current pullback, I think it's actually orchestrated because a lot of the institutional money felt late to the game, and and I think it's as much to get in as it is to uh, to cause problems. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. And uh, boy, the the deeper I go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, the the, the happier I am, the more fascinated I am. I mean, this is the the community is largely about liberty, right? About and and the the problems with fiat money. I mean, is it's the biggest driver of, of all these wars and whatnot too. I mean, it's all it's all a money game. Um, so I'm definitely on board with Bitcoin and, you know, I want people to know it's a, it's a speculation. You know, you're more at risk in, in Bitcoin than you are in, in gold. Uh, but there's more upside as well. And it's, uh, it, it doesn't have to be either or. The, um, the, I think the, the takedown recently, it does feel orchestrated, especially this, the, the behavior of Elon Musk. I guess he's erratic anyway, but to, to put 1.5 billion in in February and then Two months later, three months later, you know, come out with all these negative comments around energy. It's it's just bizarre. It feels orchestrated and, and manipulative. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. It's not a it's not a transaction. It's not a, a currency in the in the sense that you're going to use it to buy your coffee. That you know, it, but it's an asset that you can hold and that's borderless, that's decentralized, that isn't controlled by government. I mean, if you could literally you know fly halfway across the world and have all of your assets with you, and that you can't do that with with anything else. You can't so, do it with gold, yeah. Right? Not at all. Think about it as a corporation. Let's say you're a mega corporation and you put thirty billion dollars, a billion dollars, just a billion dollars in gold, hard gold, not an ETF, on your balance sheet, and took possession of the metal, and you're headquartered in Europe, and you decide you want to move from Europe to the United States and bring your gold with you. What does it cost to move a – people say Bitcoin transactions are expensive. Okay, move a billion dollars worth of gold from France to Texas and see what that costs. The private security alone you're going to need to secure the asset is insane. You're going to have to get a 747 – probably a couple 747s for that much gold. I don't know. Um, but you're talking probably millions of dollars to logistically move that amount of gold. It's probably a couple Absolutely. hundred yep. – and people think Bitcoin would go up exponentially as the size of the transaction. It's not really. No. Like, you can, it's dirt cheap to move a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. That's how these corporations create this two tier system where you can buy your scone and your coffee with Bitcoin, which I think is just stupid, and, and you don't have any fees. Well, that's because they're moving, you know, millions of dollars a day in one transaction. That's how they do that. That's how uh, Strike is working, if you've heard of them. They're, they're basically a global payment system using Bitcoin, and there's a lot of countries where they don't treat Bitcoin the way we do. These, all these third-world countries, they don't, 
they don't tell you you have to track every transaction and tax the buy and the sell. So like Nicaragua, of all places right now, is like a hotbed for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And people are you know selling tortillas and shit out of carts with it. And you, how can you do that with Bitcoin? Well, because they're using a third-party app that's, that's bu uh, bundling the transactions to throw the cost down. So there, it can be done. I just think that, yeah, we'll, we'll let that go. I think we both set our piece on that. I want to get into your books. Um, we've been talking about some pretty high-level stuff here, right? Like, these are things that if I tried to talk about it using the vocabulary and the language that you and I are using as two informed adults with each other, my grandson would eye-roll himself into Narnia, right? Like, I mean, just n no way I'm going to keep his attention. What made you decide to start writing kids' books on this subject, and how have you done it in a way that engages kids, conveys enough information without trying to push too hard too fast? Yeah, great question. And I've been uh, I've been called crazy before, but uh, as I mentioned, I think when I when I look back at, at my childhood, boy, I you know I had a wonderful childhood. But when I got into adulthood, and I have an economics degree, by the way, uh, but I still didn't really know any of this stuff, and I was. You know, certainly primed to, to, to lose money in the uh, dot-com crash or the housing bust of 2008. And at that point, I said, I have to start digging deeper and understand how this stuff really works. And aside from having healthy, loving, personal relationships, which is so critical, this is the most important thing that I've ever come to understand. And most people don't have a clue because it's essentially the big lie. It can't be taught in schools because that would reveal the con. So... What I try to do is basically bring it into story. I, you know, one of the best ways to communicate messages is through stories. It's about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell our children. And when, when I read to my kids at night, you know, it's not one and done, right? We, we read the same books over and over and over again, you know, maybe once a week or once every 10 days or so. They're ready to hear it again. And my earliest memories, I mean, are The cat in the hat, Dr. Seuss. I mean, these things become embedded in your brain, not just the lessons, but that time, that time, you know, with mom and dad before bed reading that book. And so you can actually get important concepts across because you're doing it through repetition. I mean, my three-year-olds love these books, but they don't understand them yet. Mm. My, you know, my, my 10 and 12-year-old, they know this stuff well because we've been going over it for years. But, I mean, my little three-year-old, he's carrying around good debt, bad debt, and the big green blob because he just he loves the pictures and he loves the when I read it to him. Uh, but over time, they get it, and they get it well. I mean, you know, if you ask my kids what's the root of all the, the world's biggest problems, they'll spit out in unison the, the broken debt-based paper money system. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So part of what you're saying is you make the story interesting, and, and they'll take the 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 lessons as they mature to whatever level they're ready for. Yes, absolutely. They're not going to get it all right away. And to tell you the truth, I mean, I, I feel like we're, we're trying to do a, a little service for, for the whole family. I mean, the, the parents are going to pick up stuff in this as well, because this is not mainstream, but it's absolutely right. And so critical. Um, so, you know, we start them early, but they're not going to get it till they're probably, you know, six or six plus. Uh, but again, It's you could read under under six. You could read them anything and sitting there with them and seeing the pictures and the excitement in your voice. They pick it up and they like it. Very, very cool. And what are some like how many books are there? What are some of the titles available? How can people get them? 
Yeah, so right now we've got four total. We're, I mean, we're just keep trying to turn them out. But the first one is called Where Does Money Come From? It's the delightful beginning. It sets the foundation, illustrating the difference between sound money like gold and silver versus fiat money, which is, you know, that uh, paper money, money by government decree. And it really shows how going off that gold standard has caused a hollowing of America with that. If you understand this, if your kids understand this, they understand the world. And then next we've got good debt, bad debt, and the big green blob, which shows how the rich use debt to accumulate assets while the poor use debt the opposite way, consumptively. And as the old saying goes, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Then we've got the big bad business cycle, which teaches families how the Federal Reserve uses the debt-based paper money system to cause a boom and bust cycle that bankrupts the unprepared but can be wildly profitable for those who understand and can watch the cycles. And then the last one, which is printing right now, is called the madness of crowds. From witch trials to financial bubbles to global pandemics, it prepares families for a fatal flaw in that human construct what we call herd behavior, or our fear of questioning the consensus. And that can cloud our judgment and lead to peril. And uh, folks want to take a look, you can find us at thebaddaddy.com, thebaddaddy.com. Terrible URL, but my son coined it when I was trying to discipline him, and he would just scream, bad daddy, bad daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's, it's commonplace, man. I, uh, I just had a, a, a toddler tantrum last week with my granddaughter. I heard her screaming, I don't like that word at my wife. And I went out to find out what the word was. The word was no. <laughs> she did not like being told no, so she threw a fit. She got a timeout. All went back to, to good things. Hey, man, I really appreciate you being with us, folks. Again, as uh, you heard him just say there, uh, the website is thebaddaddy.com. Definitely worth checking out. I've got all your social media stuff as well as the website in the show notes today. And, Phil, dude, I really appreciate you being with us. Sounds good. And, hey, um, if folks want to try us, we have this package called The Alliance where you, you get 40% discount. We'll send you one book every three months. And if you don't like the first one, if it's over the head of your kids and you don't want it any, or you don't want to continue with the subscription, let us know. We'll refund 100% of your money, and you can wow. keep it anyway. It's okay. you know, nothing to send back. The, the book is it's too important to story find your family. And thank you so much, Jack. It's been a real pleasure. It was a great interview. I really encourage you to check out Phil's website. Again, uh, it is Bad Daddy Publishing, and you can find it at thebaddaddy.com. And I think you'd really enjoy uh, reading these books to your kids. And his little ambassador program, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty big discount, and there's really no risk, because if you're going to buy one book and pay $24 for it, or basically buy one book with the agreement to buy another book three months later for fourteen, and if you don't like the book, you cancel the you cancel it, and they'll give you your money back, and you get the book for free. So I can't see the risk in that. I think it'd be a good way to support a small business uh, doing some really important work. With that, let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up and and start out with uh, the T Spaz item of the day. Uh, the item of the day today is. The Briggs and Stratton um, uh, generator. It's uh, the Briggs and Stratton P4500 power smart series inverter generator. I've called this thing the Honda killer, and people get upset with it because people have such loyalty and such appreciation for Honda. But the reason I call it that is that the, the the closest thing you can compare it to 
to what Honda makes would be the EU 2000. And for less than the price of one EU 2000, you can buy two of these and have a lot more power, both starting watts and running watts, and you have two. And you know how I feel about two. Two is one and one is none. So if one of them goes, you know, has a problem, you still have another one that still has more power than the EU 3000 in the first place. Or you could just buy one of them, even if, you, if that's all you want to do, and you're still ahead of the game. But I don't, I don't see where you get... Because I, I would rate the quality and reliability of this generator at like 90% that of the Honda, but at a fraction of the cost. 40% of the price. You get 90% of the quality for 40% of the price. You know what I say all the time, right? Always be frugal. Never be cheap. This is a perfect example of that. And if you have the budget for the EU 3000 and you buy the EU 3000 instead of two of these, I feel like you hate money. Why? Because the dadgone thing is on sale right now for 899 bucks. Now, I don't think that's a price where everybody should just buy one whether you need it or not. I didn't buy one. Every time this thing goes on sale, it goes on sale between $850 and $900 here and there for short cycles. Every time it goes on sale, I think about buying it. I own three generators. I really don't need four. Two is one, one is none, three is for me, but four would be even more, and I come close to doing it. And I end up deciding there's other things I could do with my money. But I'll say this. If you don't have a good, high-quality, powerful generator, you need to have one in your preps. If you ask me, my biggest hole in my preps in the early days, it was not having a really good, high-quality generator. And the prep that has bailed my ass out more often than any other prep has been a generator. And number two has been a, a, a propane or a kerosene heater. Having an alternative source of heat and an alternative source of power, and I would say in your southern climates like I'm in, having some window ACs you can run on a generator like this, those are some of the most valuable preps you can make. Storm season is here, and it's only going to get worse. Hurricane season officially started today. Do you know what these things cost? Normally, about fourteen hundred bucks, eight ninety nine, fourteen hundred bucks. And you know what they cost during a hurricane? It doesn't matter because you can't get one. So check it out today. And remember, you can always be alerted to these sales in case they sell out if you're on the TSPC Telegram channel. You can sign up for that. You can also get on our email newsletter, etc. Um, with that, just remember you can always support us no matter what you buy if you start your shopping at tspaz.com. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up today with our song of the day. This is an interesting song. Um, I don't think I've ever heard it. It's not that old of a song. I'm not sure when it's from. I don't remember now. Uh, but Little Big Town was formed in 1999, so it can't be any older than that. And it's called Free. And it's not about, when you hear the word free, most likely if you listen to this show, you start thinking about freedom. Well, in this song, they're talking about free as in at no cost. But they're not talking about getting a gimmick or something like that. It's, very, it's a very nostalgic song, looking back to the time kind of gone by, the time of our grandparents, or for some of y'all, your great-grandparents. And how the greatest things in life are free. talks about that simpler time and all of the things about growing up and playing outside and stuff like that. All of the things that really put quality in our lives don't actually cost any money. But, you know, I want to caution people. You know, we, we, we talked quite a bit today um, about money. 
And there is this misguided belief that, you know, in the whatever the time is before you was born, so you don't have any frame of reference, you can't see it, you can't touch it, you only hear about it, that back then people were less controlled by money. You know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt changed the timing of Thanksgiving to create more Christmas shopping to try to spur the economy during the Great Depression. During the Great Depression. You got it? We, people have been manipulated by money and power for as long as there's been money and power. The point of the song is completely valid. The most wonderful things in our lives, the things that have the greatest contribution to our happiness, generally don't cost any money. Where, and I can understand artistically why they did this, but I think where it misses the mark a little bit is the belief that it used to be that way. The truth is, it's always been the way that it is, and we've always had a choice. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Magnavox in the living room, CBS and NBC. Clothes on ten in the backyard, hockey game playing in the street. Deck of cards in the kitchen, cool breeze from our screen door. Grandma reading love letters, Grandpa wrote her in the war. Free all those memories. Free didn't cost us anything. All the shiny cars, perfect yards, chasing store-bought dreams. We worked so hard to have it all, when all the things we want are free. Got your accent from your hometown, sense of humor from your God knows you can't buy that They'll charge you for your six-pack But your friends are always there A few extra bucks in the offering plate Even though you can't buy a prayer Free Shiny cars, perfect yards, chasing slow by dreams.